Tonight's scripture is taken from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sandy, for reading that for us. And welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see all of you. Glad you all could make it through uh, between the heat and the rain. It's probably a challenge getting here, but so good to see all of you. My name is Jonathan Mosher. It's my privilege and honor to be able to open up the Word of God with you this evening. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. One of the things I enjoy about summer uh, in Wisconsin, aside from the fact that summer in Wisconsin, despite the heat snap that we're experiencing and the storm that was happening when you came in tonight, summers in Wisconsin really are pretty uniquely beautiful um, as compared to much of the country. And I love, uh, I love our summers here. I love it. I love it for a lot of reasons. Among the reasons that I enjoy it is, is that on occasion um, I get opportunities to play golf. Now I'm not much of a golfer. Um, if, we're, if we're just putting confessions out there, I'm not much of a golfer. Somebody asked me last week if, I, if I'm a golfer. I said I'm really more of a duffer. Um, I enjoy going out. I enjoy playing golf. I enjoy swinging a club. Um, but I'm not really all that good at it. But the best piece of advice I ever received uh, was probably about 10 years ago. I was playing with somebody who was a far better uh, golfer than I, and I remember w- this is when I was playing a lot more consistently than I am now, and I had hit a few bad shots in a row, and after one of these bad shots, I took my 9-iron and I just kind of slammed it into the ground. I didn't throw it, I just slammed the heel of it into the ground in frustration, and this gentleman that I was playing with, seeing me in this heightened state of anxiety over my golf play, came over and gave me the best piece of advice I've ever received on a golf course. He came over to me and he put his arm around me and he said, you are not good enough to be this angry about golf. (laughs) And he said, once you can swing a club and consistently hit the ball, uh, where where you know where that ball is going to go, he goes, that's the point when you can start to get frustrated and upset about your golf game. But until then, stop being mad. And it was the best piece of advice I ever received because I've enjoyed golf a lot more ever since. But I get opportunities now and then to play. And most recently, um, I had a chance to play about a week ago uh, on a Friday. Um, I I went and played for a golf fundraiser for my alma mater. I ended up going, um, attending the same college that my father went to. Um, So one of the unique things that happens at events like this for me is I'll run into people who know my dad, uh, people who went to school, maybe they're in administration now, or maybe they're teaching. Uh, most of them are approaching retirement age if they're not there already. But, but one of the unique things is that I'll run into people who know my dad, and maybe they saw me 30 years ago, right? So they remember me as a little kid, or, or they recognize me, or I kind of, my family has a resemblance. You can tell we're all related, so they may just recognize me. But at this particular instance, I went over to the registration table, and the gentleman who was registering all the golfers that day saw my last name, and he said, ah, Mosier. He goes, are you Leo's boy? 
Now, I'm proud to be my father's son. I really am. I love my dad. I have a huge respect for him. I named my oldest son after my father, but nothing makes you feel younger than being referred to, in my case, as Leo's boy. But for those who knew my father years ago, and for those who maybe hadn't seen me in 25 or 30 years, it's going to be hard for them to view me as anything else other than Leo's boy. It's how they know me. And so there's truth to the idea that familiarity breeds contempt. And just to define that, contempt doesn't necessarily mean anger. It just might mean indifference, right? That they don't necessarily see you for who you are. They recognize you by who you're related to. That the more familiar you are with something the more you take it for granted and the less regard you give it. And in a much more significant extent, this was the experience of Jesus in this text. If you remember uh, back to Mark chapter 3, Jesus had gone home for his first visit after beginning his earthly ministry, and in that visit with his family, he had dealt with the doubt and the the criticism and, and all of the concerns and questions of his own family. They were critical of his mission, They were critical of his work. They were critical of his identity. In one case, a family member, presumably an extended family member, actually was questioning his sanity. And in Luke's account of that passage, that whole story, Jesus' first visit back to Nazareth ended with people at once marveling at his teaching, being amazed at the words that he was speaking and the clarity with which he spoke and the insights that he offered and the wisdom that he had, but then in the very next breath, turning and threatening to kill him. And now, in Mark chapter 6, a little further on into his ministry, Jesus is leading the disciples back to his hometown, even though he had been treated poorly. And again, in this, don't miss the humanity of Jesus Christ. Even though he had been mistreated even though he had been shown the door, he still had an affection for the people with whom he'd grown up. There's something special about our hometowns, kind of regardless of where you grew up, but it's that whole idea of you can't go home again, right? When you, when you return back home, everything's a little bit different. New businesses have cropped up. New neighbors are living next door to where you used to live. Everything's changed a little bit, but there's always an affection, a sympathy, a love for the place from which we come. And that's what we see Jesus experiencing in this passage. On his second visit back to Nazareth, which turns out to actually be his last visit to his home region, and that's where we pick up the story in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, just real briefly, Nazareth is not an imposing or an impressive town. It's a little backwater village in the middle of a little backwater region of Israel. It was unimpressive to nearly everybody. So just to put it in perspective, Nazareth lied about four miles from the nearest major Roman outpost. It was the the outpost of Herod Antipas, the, the, the governmental ruler who oversaw this region, and they had absolutely no regard for the people of Nazareth. I mean, excavations that have been done of this region have demonstrated that Nazareth probably had, at its peak, about 500 residents. This is a very small and unimpressive town, and it's filled with unimpressive people, at least in a worldly perspective. It's largely a a blue-collar village. It was of no strategic or political importance, but to the people that lived there, obviously, it meant a great deal to them. 
To the Jews outside of the region, they had very little regard for Nazareth because of its proximity to the Gentiles. If you remember in Matthew's account, he actually calls this region Galilee of the Gentiles. Do you remember that? In, in Matthew's description of that, he's saying this region, though it belongs to Israel, is filled with all kinds of Gentiles, and it borders Gentiles, and therefore the, the Jews didn't have a lot of use for this region either. But this is where Jesus is from. This is home for him. This is where he'd spent time with his family. This is where he'd learned carpentry from his father. This is home. Verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now, as opposed to chapter 3, the audience that Jesus was speaking to is probably substantially larger. He goes to the local synagogue, he begins to teach, and even in that, there's a recognition of something that Jesus Christ has accomplished. The fact that he was given a platform to speak in the synagogue meant that he had at least some level of knowledge and understanding, that he understood Judaism, that he understood the Bible. He was given, and re- given a role and recognized as a visiting teacher. And in being given this opportunity to speak, we see something again about the person of Jesus, something that is impressive about his abilities and his gifts. I mean, the fact that Jesus had distinguished himself at all was impressive. He came from this nowhere town in the middle of a nowhere region. He had relatively little education, at least as compared to other biblical scholars or or those that were involved in the religious order. And on top of that, he's distinguished himself as a speaker. I mean, think about this. The Jewish culture, particularly at this time, and certainly continuing on today, has a very high value on education and on ability, on scholarly works, on all of these sorts of things. And so for Jesus to come up and be given an opportunity to teach at the local synagogue meant that he had distinguished himself in a very crowded field. And his teaching actually demonstrates that. As he begins to teach, as he begins to open up the Old Testament and explain what it had to say, maybe in, in much the same manner that he had with the disciples, beginning, beginning with the law and the prophets and working through and explaining to the people that were there who God is, what are his expectations, what did he design us for, to what end are we living? And as he begins to expound on all of these things, the people that were gathered that day were astonished, it says, at his insight. They could not believe what he was saying. They couldn't believe the clarity with which he spoke. They couldn't believe the authority that he had in speaking about these issues. They couldn't believe the insights that he had into the word that they certainly knew very well. But what we see is that these people's amazement very quickly turns to aggravation. And they begin to throw out a series of questions. You can almost imagine them sitting in the synagogue, beginning to first ask one another quietly, a husband to his wife, a wife to her husband, beginning to ask questions. And soon the volume becomes louder as they start lobbing these questions at Jesus, trying to undermine him. Look what they say, the second half of verse 2, and they said, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And what's interesting is they don't deny the things that he's saying. They don't deny the amazing ability or the amazing truth of what it is he's declaring. They're actually asking, who are you? They don't doubt his authoritative insights. They don't doubt the fact that he is teaching like no one they've ever heard nor do they deny the mighty works. I mean, 
Nazareth is located about 25 miles from Capernaum, the place Jesus had just left. They had heard, undoubtedly, the story of Jesus calming the sea, of people who were standing on the beach that day watching Jesus go off in a boat, and all of a sudden the sea went calm. They had heard the stories of the demoniac, of the sick woman, of Jairus' daughter, and they didn't doubt the veracity of any of those things. It was undeniable that Jesus had access to unique power, power unlike anything they'd ever seen. So the question then for us becomes this, what then made it so difficult for these people to believe in him? If they heard the words, if they were impressed by the message, if they had seen his works or at least knew of his works, why did they have such a hard time believing in him? Verse 3, the accusations continue. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. What made it so hard for them to believe? Their familiarity. Jesus had captivated the minds and the hearts of all sorts of people outside of his home region. All sorts of people had run to him, had had desired nothing more than to touch him or to see him or to be near him or to be with him, to hear the words that he was declaring. The synagogue in Capernaum, which was filled with educated and scholarly people, were amazed at his insight and his wisdom. But when he comes home, he's greeted with suspicion, and derision. After all, they'd all seen Jesus grow up. They'd seen him climb trees with his brothers, and they'd seen him run through the town with his sisters. They'd seen him sitting at synagogue with his family. And they're so offended at the notion of what Jesus is teaching that they don't even call him Jesus They call him this man. Isn't this the carpenter? There's nothing inherently insulting about calling him a a carpenter. I mean, manual labor in this culture is of high esteem. In fact, the Torah commanded a, a good Jewish father to train up his son if he had a trade in which to train him. But perhaps what they thought was that Jesus came back to town and was trying to portray himself as better than them. And they begin to ask the question, isn't this the same one who as a teenager was carrying lumber for Joseph? Are you telling me that he went away a carpenter and he came back as the Messiah? And their response to that question is a resounding no. There's nothing special about this man. He's just like us. But the second comment is worth some attention. Isn't this Mary's son? Now, here's the reason that that language is striking. It's noteworthy because in ancient cultures, you were most commonly known by your relation to your father. So Jesus would have been known, in order to distinguish him from anyone else named Jesus, he would have been known as Jesus, son of Joseph. 
It was the equivalent of our modern-day last name, of our surname. And the fact that Mary is mentioned here is most likely, according to most scholars, a slight on her character. In other words, Jesus comes back from being out in the world in his ministry. He comes back to his hometown. He's probably anywhere between about 31 and 32 years old at this point. He comes back into town, and for 30 years, there have been rumblings about his mother, Mary. People knew who she was. People knew Joseph. People knew that Joseph was not the birth father of Jesus. And so as people are asking this question, isn't that Mary's son? Inherent in that statement is a slight on Mary's character, an accusation of illegitimacy about Jesus. After all, she'd conceived Jesus prior to being married to Joseph. In a small town like this, whispers went far. And now, after taking offense at the things that Jesus said in synagogue, these whispers find a louder voice. And finally they say, isn't this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And, and just as a side note, this is one of the few passages where we really get insight into Jesus' family. We're told of at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and we're also told that he has sisters. And if, just in case you're interested, the language that's used in this verse would indicate that he had at least three sisters and potentially more. But the question that they are asking innately when they pose this is, Jesus, what makes you better than your siblings? What makes you different? And the temptation for us as modern readers who know this story, might be to look at these people with contempt. After all, these are faithful Jews. They've been looking for the Messiah and awaiting his coming for millennia. And now here he stands right in front of them, declaring himself to them, and as if that's not enough, giving them insights into Scripture that they never have heard before that make absolute sense to their minds, and demonstrating through his mighty works his deity, and they miss it. And not only do they miss who Jesus is, but they have the gall to call him out and condemn him and ridicule him. But in case you're tempted with that, understand that there is a tragic truth in this passage. The mistake that these people made is not limited to those who grew up with Jesus physically, but is the mistake that all people make who take Jesus for granted. See, the truth is, for many of us, we likewise grew up with Jesus. Maybe not physically, and maybe not in Israel, but you grew up in the church, and you attended worship services, and you sang the songs, and you went to Sunday school, and you heard the teaching, and you volunteered in various ministries. The invitation of this passage is to really begin to ask questions of your own heart and soul. Because perhaps for you, Jesus has become just another symbol of your cultural identity. Much like the Jews at this time, their Judaism was not only a religion for them, it was their cultural marker, it was their point of pride, it was the way that they identified themselves, it was the way that they distinguished themselves 
from their neighbors, and perhaps you and I have done the very same thing with Jesus, where he's become nothing more to us than a symbol. And in the words of one pastor, maybe you've had just enough Jesus to inoculate yourself against him. Where you are so close and you see him in one perspective or another so clearly, but have no sense of a true, deep, meaningful relationship with him. That's what happened with these people. They were near Jesus. They'd seen Jesus. They may have even considered themselves to be friends with Jesus, but they didn't know him. They didn't know him the way that he was revealing himself to them, and they absolutely didn't worship him. And look what happens next in verse 4. And Jesus says to him, and we don't know how he says, but he says it, but you can imagine that he's heartbroken as he says it because these people that he knew so well had no regard for him. He says these words, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and even in his own household. And Jesus, in in using this phrase, is referencing a proverb of the day. You'll notice that there's three decreasing circles of intimacy. He says, first, a prophet isn't recognized within their hometown. When they go back home and all these people see Jesus and all of them knew him from when he was a child and they knew his family and they knew all about him, they did not recognize him for who he was. But he doesn't stop there. He says also, relatives, In other words, extended family. These are cousins and aunts and uncles and all of the people who are around him who did not recognize this very same Jesus for being the Messiah that he ultimately was. And here's the one that hurts the most, his household. The intimate family, brothers and sisters. And here's what we know about the brothers who've just been mentioned in this passage. We know that at least two of them did not believe and follow Jesus Christ until after his death. In other words, it might be safe to presume that the only one there that day in the family of Jesus Christ who recognized him as the Messiah was Mary. And you can imagine the brokenhearted nature of Jesus' mother at realizing this. Because what Jesus is saying when he uses this phrase is he's saying, look, those who know the prophet best thought the least of him. And these people's rejection of Jesus had no basis except in their own blindness and sin. And since they were unable to explain him, they rejected him. So here's the thing. It may be difficult for us, for an average person, to have this experience where someone who you know and whom you love will not listen to your words of advice. They will not heed your warnings. They will not hear you when you speak just because they know you. But when one has that attitude towards Jesus, the results are tragic and eternal. It is infinitely worse. Look at verse 5. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, what does it mean that he could do no mighty works? 
Because if we read that, it makes us think that somehow Jesus had an external limitation put on him. But if you read this very same account in other gospels, what you realize is actually Jesus is saying, I will not do these works here. It was a self-imposed moral restriction based on the fact that these people had rejected him. Every time you see Jesus perform a miracle in the Bible, what's interesting to note is that it is always to meet a particular need. He's always meeting someone's needs through his miracles, he does, to, to ultimately to give evidence to his deity, but he's not putting on a magic show. He's not just demonstrating power for the sake of power. And for that reason, as he interacts with these people, he feels no obligation to perform miracles. He felt it impossible to exercise his power on their behalf in the face of their rejection. And the question that we would immediately throw back is, well, wouldn't this be the perfect opportunity? Wouldn't this be the perfect example and time for a demonstration of a miracle? I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing that we would beg to see. In those moments of doubt that we have where we wonder about God, we wonder about Jesus, we wonder about his goodness, we wonder if he really is who he says he is, there is a part of us innately as human beings that says, Jesus, if you would just show yourself to me, if you would just do something for me, if you would demonstrate your power, we're saying, just like Thomas, if I could put my hand in his side where the spear went in, then I would believe. And so to us, it seems like, Jesus, you're missing a huge opportunity. But Jesus wasn't performing miracles just to get a superficial, emotional response from the people. See, Jesus wasn't wasn't pursuing their applause. He was pursuing their hearts. He wasn't just after their emotions in this moment. He was after their soul. And this is the very same truth that Jesus illustrates in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. If you remember that story, Jesus tells this very interesting story. He says there was once a rich man and, and a poor man named Lazarus. And the rich man every day was having these feasts and calling in the people of the town and having these banquets for, for, for people of high society. And there was a poor man who was covered with sores and was sick just outside the gates who was just begging, longing for the scraps from the rich man's table. And Jesus says, ultimately, these two men both died, and in their death, the rich man goes to Hades, goes to hell. He's separated from the presence of God. And Lazarus, who's a believer in God, ultimately goes to be with God in paradise. So as these two men die and both experience in a very real way their eternal fates, the rich man, in the middle of experiencing all of this torment and all of these, all of these unbelievable, horrific realities of Hades sees way off in the distance Abraham, the Old Testament father, the hero of the faith for the Jewish people. And he cries out to Lazarus, and he, or to, rather to, to Abraham, and he says, if you could just dip your finger in a little bit of water and place it on my tongue, I'd be forever grateful. And the answer comes back from Abraham, I can't because there's a chasm, a gulf between us. And so the rich man says, in that case, will you please send Lazarus to go tell my brothers about the truth and the reality of who God is? Would you send Lazarus to convey a message of salvation to my brothers because I don't want them to end up where I am? And again, the response comes back from Abraham, 
they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man responds, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. If they see that kind of power, that demonstration, then they will actually repent and believe. And Abraham responds, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that very same truth is what Jesus Christ is laying out in this passage. He's saying, I could do miracles all day long. I could go around the room and respond to everyone's requests and grant them exactly what they're asking for, and it would not change their hearts. Why? Because they did not grasp their own desperate need of the gospel. They did not see their need for Christ. And if you're only coming to Jesus for what he can give you, you are not really coming to him at all. I mean, notice what Mark says next. He couldn't do anything mighty, and this kind of made me chuckle. He, he couldn't do anything mighty, except that he miraculously healed a few people, which is just great to me because Mark is saying these healings are so commonplace at this point that they hardly even count as divine demonstrations of healing. But here's ultimately what Mark is recording for us. He's saying presumably there were a select number of people in his hometown who heard Jesus speak and recognized him for who he truly was. And in the midst of all the mockery and all the ridicule and all the criticism and all the questions, they were listening to Jesus and they heard him. They recognized him. They identified this man, this man who you're questioning and wondering about, this man is worthy of our worship as God. And in doing so, they came to him with their needs. So, so understand this. If you come to Jesus for what he can give you, you will walk away empty-handed. Jesus refuses to be the means to your end. He will not allow himself to be used in that way, but if you come to Jesus for who he is, if you see him as more beautiful and more glorious and more gracious and more worthy and more to be desired than anything else, he will give you more than you could have ever imagined. And don't hear that wrong because our tendency when we think about that is materialism. I go to Jesus, he gives me stuff, that's the exchange. But no, what I'm saying is he gives you something infinitely greater than that. He gives you himself. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you salvation. And far from just giving you material things that can fade and break and be lost, he gives you whole new affections, whole new desires, a whole new pursuit and direction. And in the words of one author, do not confuse your agenda for Jesus as faith in Jesus. And notice the response of Jesus in verse 6, and he marveled 
Why? Because of their unbelief. There's two times in Scripture that we're told that Jesus was amazed or that he marveled at something, which is, which is interesting in and of itself, and we should take note, because if it happens that rarely, it's worth looking and seeing why he does that. And the first time that it happens is when a man comes to him and says, I, I want you to, to heal this person in my home. I, I, want you to, I, I want you to do for them what doctors and everyone else has been, been unable to do. And so Jesus says, well, let's go. And the man responds, no, 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 no. Just say the word and it's done. And Jesus, amazed, marveled at his belief. And the second time Jesus marveled is right here. He marveled because of their unbelief. See, to this point in Jesus' life and ministry, everywhere he went, the crowds were amazed at Jesus' authority. They were amazed at his works. They were amazed at the things that he did. But in Nazareth, in his own hometown, it is Jesus who is amazed at their disbelief. He was amazed at their lack of faith. See, what amazes God is not the sinfulness of humanity. I mean, Jesus never bats an eye at that. Jesus is never surprised at the depravity of the human soul. He's never surprised at the situations in which people find themselves. He's never surprised when people are given over and overwhelmed by their own sin. He's never thrown off by that at all. But the lack of faith the hardness of heart and the unwillingness to believe in him. That's what amazes him. The Messiah stood in front of them. They heard him preach. They knew of his great works. They interacted with him. They talked to him. And yet they did not believe. So one scholar, a man named Edmund Hebert, in his commentary on Mark says this, Humanity wants a spectacular sign of God or a great display of divine power, but it does not want God to become a human being like one of us. The people of Nazareth see only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only another one of the village children who has grown up and returned for a visit. If only God were less ordinary and more unique, then they would believe. The servant image of the Son is too prosaic to garner credulity. In other words, it is far too ordinary to impress anyone. God has identified too closely with the world for the world to behold him, too closely with the town of Nazareth for it to recognize in Jesus the Son of God. Now listen to this. Humanity wants something other than what God gives. The greatest obstacle, obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, the son of Mary. In other words, we are always looking for Jesus to be something other than who he already is, when who Jesus is is all we need. 
We have our own pictures and our own stories that we tell ourselves and our own opinions about what Jesus must believe or hold to or be like or appear as. And that is the exact same mistake that all of these people made. When they pictured the Messiah, they pictured a king riding in on a white horse to lead his people into rulership, to lead them into prominence, domination. And because Jesus did not fit their picture, they rejected him. And so let me just pose this, because I don't know where you are at with Jesus today. Maybe the reason you struggle with Jesus, if you struggle with him, maybe the reason you struggle with him is that he's different than you'd expected. Maybe you struggle because Jesus often says things that you don't like. I will freely admit there are things Jesus says where I, I pause and go, do you really have to say that? That's really hard to believe. Do you know how that sounds to, to other people? Maybe he says things that you don't like. Maybe he criticizes things that you hold dear. Maybe he values things that you dismiss. And look at how people who actually interacted with Jesus responded to him in Scripture. Because we run the whole gamut of human emotion. The rich young ruler encounters Jesus and thought he made way too big a deal of generosity. I'm telling Jesus I want to be his follower. What does he care what I do with my money? The Samaritans in Luke 9 despise Jesus solely for his ethnicity. As Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, as he walks into the Samaritan village, they're excited to see him until they realize that ultimately he's going to go into Jerusalem. And then they say, oh, here's just another one of these Judaizers. And they dismiss him because of his ethnicity. In Matthew chapter 11, the Pharisees hated him for his friendship with sinners. They're looking around and they're saying, why in the world is this guy not friends with us? Look at the crowds he has. Look at all the people that are coming to hear him preach. Look at all the amazing things that he's done. Look how people respond to Jesus. Shouldn't he be one of us? Why isn't he our friend? Why doesn't he dine with us? Why doesn't he think like us? Why doesn't he condemn the same people that we condemn? And the response then is to look at Jesus and to slander him. He's just a glutton. He's a drunk. He's a friend of sinners. And finally, the crowd in John chapter 6 thought he asked entirely too much of them. When Jesus said, if you're a follower, you'll eat my body and drink my blood. And imagine at that time how that must have sounded. And so the crowds who were so excited to see him and so excited to witness miracles and so excited to hear him teach walk away. But likewise, there are other responses recorded for us. Zacchaeus, a tax collector, a man hated of his people, interacts with Jesus, 
and finds that Jesus is incredibly generous, willing even to come into his own home. You can imagine Zacchaeus, who we're told was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. You can imagine him running his wee little legs all the way back to his house. Jesus is coming to my house. Why? Of all the places he could be, why is he coming to my house? The woman caught in adultery brought in almost literally being dragged in by the Pharisees, thrown at the feet of Jesus. And the question posed to him, the law says that someone who's caught in adultery should be stoned to death. What do you say? And Jesus responds, if any of you are without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. See, that woman found Jesus to be incredibly forgiving. The woman at the well found him to be prophetic. The blind beggar found him to be merciful. The children in Matthew 19 found him to be welcoming. The tax collectors found Jesus to be gracious. The woman of the city who had experienced nothing but brutality and mistreatment by men her whole life found Jesus to be tender and sweet. So what is the difference in response? What leads some into worship and love of Jesus and leads others to reject him and ignore him? See, those who seek the acceptance of Jesus by virtue of their own goodness never find acceptance. And unless you're sitting here saying, well, I'm not sure if I believe all of this anyway, but I definitely am not looking for acceptance from anybody. I'm my own person. Garbage. It's garbage. We are all longing for acceptance. We are screaming out for it. We are desperate to find it. And in our culture, people are looking to their to their own particular identities, however it is they identify themselves, to be finally the place of acceptance that they've been longing for. And the reason that individuals' identities and egos are as fragile as they are is because they have put their identity and they have put their worth in something that cannot bear the weight that they're placing on it. And Jesus is standing there going, I can bear it. I can carry anything you put on me. And those who realize their desperate need for deliverance found perfect acceptance in him. The woman coming to Jesus for physical healing found something immeasurably more valuable. She found peace with God and peace with men. Vertically and horizontally, every relationship she had changed in an instant with the healing touch of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, though, didn't just offend people through his life. He offended people through his death. And this is where we get hung up. See, the gospel is inherently offensive. 
because the gospel declares to the irreligious, to those who would want to pretend that there is no God or that if there is a God, he cannot be known or that if there is a God, I ultimately don't answer to him, to anyone who would find themselves in that camp, the gospel declares to them that there is in fact a God to whom you're accountable. And that is absolutely offensive. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to think about it. And to the religious, that a gospel declares that this very same God is not impressed by your actions and that you need someone outside of yourself to save you. See, we don't think of ourselves that way. We think of ourselves as needing just a little bit of correction. We need some additional information. We need an altered perspective. We need to understand just a little bit more and then we'll have it. But Jesus' death undoes all of those assumptions because what it declares inherently is that your heart is so sinful, so twisted up, so broken, that your mind is so wrong and your soul is so condemned that you needed Jesus, God himself, to die for you. That is inherently offensive. And Jesus' death declares that nothing short of the perfect Son of God dying for you can save your soul from the eternal destiny that you, that you deserve. But what makes all of this so incredible is that Jesus was willing to go there for you. And think of it this way, undoubtedly, there were those in the synagogue that day who actually vocalized those questions, who actually challenged the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. They had the gall to speak out against God in human flesh, and yet Jesus goes to the cross for their sins, just as, he, just as much as he does for yours and mine. Now, two of Jesus' brothers, who at this point in their lives did not believe in him as the Messiah, ultimately put their faith in him after his resurrection. And not only did they begin to proselytize and preach and become pastors and write books, namely the book of James and the book of Jude, not only did they do that, but they were willing to go all the way for it, brutally martyred on behalf of their half-brother, you've got to be pretty convinced that Jesus Christ actually is who he says he is if you're going to go through that kind of heartache and brutality. And Jesus was willing to go there for you. So the question becomes this, are you willing to see the simplicity of the radical gospel? The radical gospel that saves to the uttermost or has your familiarity bred contempt? Apathy, disinterest, dismissal. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the same offer that was rejected by his townspeople 2,000 years ago remains available to you today.
would God grant us the sight to see his grace where they saw only offense. The loving kindness of a savior who is willing to endure all of that for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for passages that that we wouldn't expect to find in your word. We don't expect to find stories of your own townspeople and even your own family rejecting you. And God, if the Bible was just a made-up book of stories, if it's just promotional material for some cult, this story would not be included. But God, we thank you that it is because it gives us such incredible insight into your love and your grace and your mercy, your forbearance and your patience toward us, and your willingness to go to the cross for us even when we were in a state where we were warring against you. God, that you, in dying on the cross for our sin, brought forgiveness, not only for every sin that we've already committed, but every sin that we ever will commit. That's an incredible demonstration. And God, we thank you as well for the testimony of Jesus' earthly brothers, of at least James and Jude, who not only wrote eloquently about the Messiah, the one true Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, but also was willing, also were willing to experience death, a martyr's death on his behalf. So God, help us to see the simplicity of who you are, the radical nature of your grace that seeks us out, that pursues us and chases us down in a most ordinary fashion. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory for it. Amen.